0: provide a little spark and he played well. The next night, February 4th, he started against the New York New Jersey Nets and he scored 25 points, had 5 assists, 7 rebounds, which if you're not much of a basketball player may not sound like much, but for a guy who had never started, hadn't even been drafted in the NBA, these were big, huge numbers. And he over the next few days, he scored 28 against the Jazz, 23 against the Wizards, 38 against the Lakers, who are always in the playoffs. And um, and then he made a game-winning three-pointer against the Raptors. And it was on. He became the biggest, most inspirational story in the NBA in in a season that was shortened due to an ugly, prolonged lockout at the beginning of the season. Am I still on here? Part of the fascination with Jeremy Lin is... Uh, that, number one, he came sort of from nowhere to throw up these huge numbers and sort of dominate games. But also it's the fascination with his race, the fact that he, there are very few Asian players. He's Korean-American, and that perhaps he had been overlooked in his, throughout his career because of his race. Um, but part of it also is that he has a very strong Christian faith. And if you've not seen interviews with him, you may not understand, he's very humble. Um, I watched his testimony online. You can go on YouTube and, and look up Jeremy Lynn's testimony that he gave last fall. So this was before he hit it real big, but he had made it to the NBA and he was giving his testimony at a church and he read a list of things that had to happen for him to make the NBA. And what he said was, all of these things on this list, I had no control over. They happened in my life, and I only can point to God and say, thank you, God, for orchestrating these things. Number one, he said, my dad moved to America in 1977, turned on the television, and fell in love with basketball. I was born into a family where basketball was just part of my life. Number two, I got the genes that allowed me to be six foot three, 200 pounds, uh, both my parents—I'm quoting all of his. Both my parents are five foot six and both weigh 110 pounds. His brothers weigh 130, 140 pounds. How did I become six foot three? That's not something I could control. Third, I got the genes to be the most competitive person in the family. I was notorious for throwing controllers when I lost video games growing up, but that turned out to be a blessing. I—I I can't identify with that. I, I think Jeff can, not me. Um, I grew up with two brothers who both loved basketball, who pushed me really hard. And I had an AAU coach, a high school coach, who both fell in love with my game, took me under their wings to develop me. Uh, Neither of my brothers had that opportunity. Uh, Five, he says, I broke my ankle my junior year of college, which turned out to be a turning point in my life, because that's when I realized I'd been taking everything for granted. Sixth, coming out of high school, I was recruited by Harvard and Brown. He really wanted to go to Stanford, but God closed the door for me to go to Stanford. So thankfully, I went to Harvard. If I had gone to Stanford, I promise I would not have been able to make it to the NBA. I wouldn't have developed as a player. Uh, Number seven, after my freshman year at Harvard, they hired Coach Hammacher, who completely transformed the entire program. Eight, I was able to find a Christian agent who loves God, believes in me, was able to give me spiritual advice throughout the season. Number nine, on, the, on draft night, when he went undrafted, Donnie Nelson of the D- Dallas Mavericks called him and said, I want to offer you a spot on my summer league team. That was the only team that offered him a spot. Um, and ten, uh, he got hurt right before pre-draft workouts. And literally the morning that the summer league started, cleared to play. And he says, that game, our starting point guard hurt his ankle and as a result, I got more minutes. I happened to play my best quarter of basketball in the fourth quarter of that game, and that was my pass to the NBA. If you look back at my life, he says, you realize that's not something I can control. I couldn't say I want to be the most competitive, or I want to be the tallest, or I want to find this coach. Um, all these things, all these people came into my life, and they're all blessings from God. So although Jeremy Lin is only 23 years old now, he has a remarkably God-centered view of his life and a humility that understands that the good things in his life have been gifts from his Heavenly Father. And there's always, obviously, he plays hard. He plays great. And so he, he doesn't just sit back and let God do everything. I mean, he says, takes what God gives him. He says, then I'm going to work as hard as I can and see where that takes me. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do, is it? Uh, to reflect back on our lives and credit God with the good things as well as recognizing that the painful trials that God worked through, like like for him, his ankle injury, um, we want to claim credit for the things that we worked for, and we want to be recognized for how we built our lives, our families, our careers, our success. That's I did that, right? But like Jeremy Lynn reminds us, there are so many factors in your life that you had no control over. In today's passage, we come to the end of the narrative that focuses on Jacob. I've been studying him for a while now. Um, not that he dies yet or goes away. We're going to see him uh, at the end of Genesis. But after this chapter and the next that focuses on Esau, we will... We'll shift our attention to his son, Joseph, and his journey into slavery and then into political power. So that's going to take us to the end of Genesis. But here in this passage, the writer of Genesis is is wrapping up Jacob's story. He's he's pulling together a bunch of loose ends and bringing Jacob and his family finally into the city in the promised land where God has been trying to get him. He reaffirms Jacob's name change. We're going to see that in his covenant promises, as well as seeing the completion of the 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. But like Jeremy Lynn, Jacob has time to thank God for his blessings, even reminding his whole family that he is the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob sees God's hand of providence moving and providing at each stage of his life. So before we read, get into the reading of the text, let's pray. Father God, give us wisdom, insight, and humility as we read the scriptures. Help us to learn from Jacob's great mistakes and Jacob's uh, obedience at times. Uh, so apply Our hearts to the message of this passage and illuminate our our hearts and our minds with the Holy Spirit to help us understand this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take a look at the first four verses as we see that God blesses Jacob despite delayed obedience. It's in your outline, it's also up on the screen. "'God said to Jacob, "'Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. "'Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you "'when you fled from your brother Esau. "'So Jacob said to his household "'and to all who were with him, "'Put away the foreign gods that are among you "'and purify yourselves and change your garments. "'Then let us arise.' and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has gone with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Let's take those uh, verses first. God had already told Jacob to go to Bethel. And he hadn't done it. He had headed towards it, but he had had settled a little further out. He found a town in the promised land, Succoth, and he he stayed there. It wasn't quite the one that God had called him to. Uh, If you were here two weeks ago, Dr. Dave talked about that. And he said he almost obeyed. He got close, not quite all the way. The danger of partial obedience. And there's speculation the next chapter, last week's sermon, was uh, one of his daughter, Dinah, being raped. And we don't know, always know all the circumstances around that, but perhaps if Jacob had obeyed, they could have avoided that. They certainly wouldn't have lived there, could have avoided that whole ugly episode. So God comes, beginning of this chapter, he comes and he says, No, seriously, Jacob, go to Bethel. All the way, it's where I'm calling you to. And then this is the only place in Genesis where God commands someone to build an altar. Usually it was something they did in in gratitude response. I think Jacob's a little thick-headed. He needs to be told, go, build an altar. He's already been asked once. Um, But it's interesting, God doesn't ask him to get rid of his idols or the house, the false gods. But it's interesting that Jacob immediately assumes that or, or knows that he needs to do that. And he immediately goes straight to his family and he has to tell them, give me your, your false gods. I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to bury them. And apparently he tolerated them. He, he knew they were there. But now he gets rid of them. And, and so why now? I think it seems that Jacob is finally realizing, this this is this theme here. Finally, come obey me. You're going to the city I'm sending you to. I need you to build me an altar. Get rid of the gods is the implied message, and he, he gets it now. One of the phrases my dad used to say, stuck with me, was, delayed obedience is disobedience. Right? When Jacob was headed towards Bethel earlier in life, but de- but settled somewhere else. That was delayed obedience. And here, I would call getting rid of the household gods delayed obedience as well. Perhaps Jacob feels that now is, is the best time to deal with these foreign gods. Um, he probably realizes he should have gotten rid of them a long time ago. There was an old song, that sort of this reminds me of, this kind of clean up your act, you're going to see God. There was a song that said, Hide the beer. The preacher's here. Right? Um, or the family on the way to church. They're almost there. Hey, stop yelling at each other. Stop cussing each other out. Right? Let's act like we love each other because we're almost to church. We know we need to start acting holy. Right? We, we, we put up with all kinds of things. And then when we think we're going to see the... People in our church, we, we clean up our act real quickly. And we realize we've got to start being holy because now God's starting to watch us, right? As if he, as if he hasn't been watching us. As if he hadn't noticed. So there's a, a good application here about not delaying obedience, obviously, but also fathers. Please understand the spiritual influence that you have in your house You need to get rid of your own idols, but you are responsible for your household's idols. They're false gods. Don't put that off. Teach your children early on what true and false worship look like. Now, I'm not saying throw away anything that doesn't have a picture of Jesus on it or that's rated G. It's going to look different for, for every family. I remember my parents really wanted to throw away my heavy metal records when I was in high school. But they didn't. You know what they did? They taught me to love Jesus. And they showed me consistent faith. Faith, And I ended up throwing away on my own. They didn't do it for me. But lead in that way. Next few verses, we see God protects Israel even when they didn't deserve it. Verses 5 through 8, As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. Finally, he's there. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Alan Bakuth. So you remember the situation if you were here last week. Or if you recall Genesis 34 that Jacob's sons had just wiped out an entire tribe of men. Because their prince, Shechem, had defiled their sister. So the nations around Israel could have easily gotten together and gone after Jacob and his family. Either out of revenge or out of fear that they were going to do this to some of the other tribes. And if you remember, at the end of the last chapter, that's exactly what Jacob is afraid of. He says in 3430, if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. But God keeps Jacob's family safe because they are the chosen people. They've sinned greatly. And the two brothers who kind of led the attack, Simeon and Levi, they'll be punished. We'll hear about that in Genesis 49. File that away. Come back to it. But, But God still protects them. Listen to how Psalm 105 explains it. I've got it up here too. Psalm 105, 8 through 15, really summarizes this period in history well. He, God, remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying, to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And here's the part. When they were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. So we've seen this over and over in the lives of the patriarchs. Haven't we? Abraham, Isaac, they've they've wandered in and they've they've lied. And God has protected them from the kings, from the the people around them. And this must have been a huge encouragement to Moses' original audience. Do you remember? Moses is writing this essentially to the community gathered in the desert for 40 years. They've left Egypt. They're heading to the promised land, but they're, they're out there. God's not letting them into the promised land. And Moses knows that they're going to read this or or hear him read it to them. And they were surrounded by hostile tribes. But with God's protection, they would be preserved. And they would enter the promised land. And, And there they would have to root out their enemies. But with God with them, they would conquer. And so Moses wanted them to be reading this and thinking the whole time, that God who protected our ancestors, he'll protect us too. And so building on this theme of protection, provision, the next section, verses 9 through 15, God reminds Jacob of the covenant terms. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. If you've been here for the Genesis sermons, not not much in there is going to be new to you. We've heard all of this before, right? God has already changed Jacob's name to Israel back in chapter 32. When they wrestled one night, God says, I'm going to stop calling you Jacob, the deceiver. That's what that meant. And then I'm going to call you Israel, which means he strives with God. So why does does Moses repeat this? I I believe it happened again, but why does he put this in there again? He's calling Jacob back and reminding him of his original mission. He's saying, I called you to Bethel. Build me the altar. Here's your new name. And here's the covenant. He's bringing him back. Verse 11. We've seen that a bunch of places, right? God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And, of course, the first place we saw that was with that Adam and Eve. New world. Fill this earth, right? Right? That's the command, go, be fruitful and multiply. And then by later in the book of Genesis, God wipes out the world, starts over with Noah and his sons and their wives. They get off the boat and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill this earth. And here I thought it was interesting and parallel that now we don't have a new earth, we have a new community. And then God is marking this new people, his chosen people, of Israel. And he's saying, here, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we've already, we've got the list coming up of of uh, Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob's done his part. He's like, I got the fruitful and multiply part. I'm done. So I think this is going to be passed on. God is saying, sons, sending that on to the sons. You are all now the tribes of Israel. You got to Fill this group of people that I'm going to be working in. And when Jacob, I'm sorry, when God tells Jacob that he will have a nation and a community come after him, these are the great promises of all the, the covenant that have been passed down to him. Well, it's a lot easier to believe for a guy with t- 12 children, right? Remember when God first said this, He was giving it to Abraham. Abraham, at the time, was 90 years old. His wife passed childbearing age, no children. That was the true test of faith. But this is a reminder. It's not quite a test of faith for Jacob. He can see how this is going to be fulfilled, but it's a reminder. Again, calling him back to what the covenant promises are. Despite all that's happened to Jacob, despite all of his deceiving and disobedience and partial obedience, all the ways he's either obeyed or not trusted God, God is still going to keep his end of the covenant. So we're wrapping up Jacob's time. Now, this last section, we get a real shift in, in tone, a real shift in content. Look at verses 16 through 29. We'll end this chapter. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob sat up, set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's uh, servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were a hundred and eighty years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So here, change in the tone. We go from promises and and blessing and and Jacob's offerings, as thanksgivings to God, to some very painful things in Jacob's life. There is the joy of, of his last son being born, but at the cost of his beloved wife, Rachel. So his wife dies, then not long after, his son betrays him, and then sometime later his father dies. So I've kind of grouped this together as we look at at sort of the the painful part of his life that Moses is is drawing our attention to. Rachel dies in childbirth, bringing the 12th son, the 12th tribe, to the family. And so Jacob's lineage is complete. He doesn't have any more kids that we know of. Moses, Moses lists all the sons out as a handy summary. And the scriptures from here on, the Old Testament is going to deal with these tribes. And we're going to see these over and over. So we have to have a good handle of their origin. And it's interesting, earlier Rachel had declared. Do you remember when she and Leah, her sister, were sort of competing for Jacob's affection to have children? And she gets so desperate, she says, give me children or I shall die. Remember that in chapter 30? How ironic, how sad that that was how she would die with her second son. She calls the child Ben-Oni, which probably your footnote says, the son of my sorrow. She knows she's going to die here. Uh, But Jacob quickly, I guess, renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. I think that's understood of as son of my strength. I'm not sure exactly why he he changed it. I think he was probably grieving his wife. Maybe he just didn't want to be reminded. Or maybe he was saying, Listen, this is this completes my, the promise of my inheritance, my twelve sons. Now I have all my children. I'm, I'm strong. But then we quickly go from the son of his strength, his youngest son, to what we would call the son of his woe, his oldest son. right? Reuben, his oldest, sleeps with Bilhah, who had fathered two of Jacob's sons. In essence, she's she's like a stepmom to him. And Jacob hears about it, the text notes, but in typical Jacob fashion, He doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't confront him. Reuben will be punished. Again, we're going to hear a lot of this back in, in Genesis 49 at the end of the book. But imagine the pain of being betrayed by a child coming soon after the death of your wife. And sometime after that, more pain hits Jacob. His father dies. I don't think it's a surprise. He's 180. He's, he's probably been blind for the last quarter of his life, at least. He's been, had a hard time seeing back when Jacob deceived him 20 plus years ago. Um, Isaac's death bring, brings his two sons together, Jacob and Esau, who had been feuding, separated most of their lives, recently brought back together. But they work together. They bury him together. And so we see certainly the end of Isaac's life, but also the rounding out of Jacob's story. And so as I look at the flow of this passage, I notice that it it sort of nicely divides in half. The first half is mostly about God's blessing and protection. The reminder of the covenant promises. Now Moses does throw in there that... uh, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, her nurse dies. Not sure why he threw that in, maybe just to explain why he, he hasn't mentioned Rebecca. We don't hear about Rebecca. But maybe this is somebody else that Jacob was close to. But that's in there. But most of the first half is God's promises. And then the second half is mostly about his pain and his trials. And I wondered if there was a, a theological flow there where we see that God's blessings and the gifts that he's put in our lives prepare us for the difficult times that can follow. I mean, we have salvation. We have great gifts of health, of family, of, of sound minds, and all these things that God has given us throughout our lives. I think of back to Jeremy Lynn's testimony of all these things that we don't have control over, that he's blessed us with that should teach us to trust him and to have a solid foundation when the storms of life come. When faith testing comes in, when, when that breaks in, sometimes it assaults the faith that has been built up. And we find out how strongly we will cling to our faith in our heavenly Father. And too often we, we lose Faith, our faith wavers. Remember many years ago, Emily Rist saying, My faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. We forget the multitude of ways that God has provided for us and been proven faithful. We forget how he's worked in the past and we forget his character. And as we study Scripture, as we worship together, we're brought back, we're reminded, week in and week out. Now, I certainly don't want to minimize grief here. We're talking about Jacob's grief for his wife and his family and his, his dad. and um, The death of a loved one can rock our world. It can have us groping for hope and for answers. I, I remember my wife, shortly after her mom died, said, we were learning a new song, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And I remember her saying that, you know, I believe the truth of that song, but I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy about what God has ordained right now. So we grieve, but then we remember the character of our God. Paul Wolfe was our men's retreat speaker just a month ago, and he spoke about his experience of getting cancer in his late 20s. And that was a, a painful experience for him. He was ultimately healed. He's been cancer-free for, for, I think, 15 years or so. But less than a decade later, his mother-in-law got cancer and she died. And so he was faced with questions Did God love me and not her? Was he faithful to me and not to her? Here's what he says in his book that's titled, My God is True. Anyone who knew her knew that Linda, his mother-in-law, was strong in her faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Did God fail Linda? Did it turn out that he did not have a future for her after all? God didn't heal Linda, so then did he abandon her? No, no, a thousand times no. God was perfectly faithful to Linda. He kept every last promise he had ever made with her in mind. We sang, Great is thy faithfulness surrounding her bed as she lay dying in her home. And then we sang it again at her memorial service after she was gone. And it was the perfect hymn to sing. After all, what had God promised her? To heal her of her cancer? No. But something far greater. He had promised to stand by her as a loving Heavenly Father in the face of her greatest fears, and then to use death to bring her to her eternal home. And that is what He has promised, and that is precisely what He he did. Her God was true, all came to pass. As I write and as you read, she is in glory right now, basking in the blessedness of heaven, praising God for his faithfulness far more earnestly than she ever did when she was here on earth. Death is painful. Death is final. Death is still an enemy. But we have a God who has defeated death. In a few minutes, we'll be eating bread, taking communion, which reminds us that Christ's body was broken for us. We'll be drinking from the cup that reminds us that Christ's blood was shed on the cross where he took the sins of his people onto himself, dying to pay the penalty for our sins so that we, his redeemed, don't have to pay for our own sins with eternal spiritual death and separation from God. We talked about Jacob and the forefathers, the patriarchs, their covenant. The new covenant in Christ's blood promises forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. The sting of death is taken and we inherit the kingdom just as Jacob and his children inherited the promised land. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these scriptures. Thank you that we are committed to teach and preach each one, that we don't skip chapters that are hard. Thank you for the scripture writers who do not whitewash the heroes of the faith, that they are presented in all their stark contrasts, all their faults are brought through. Lord, Jacob's life reminds us that you use scoundrels and deceivers, people who partially put their trust in you, partially obey you, God, you built the foundation of your chosen people, Israel, on a man whom you called Israel, who put up with idol worship in his household, failed to discipline his children, and had children by four different women. So if you can work in someone like that, Lord, we trust that you can work in us, who doubt you so often, who forget how great you are, who forget that you walk with us through all of these trials. And just as Jacob looked back over his life and and saw the work of your hand, help us to see your sovereign hand that moves in our lives. Help us to see the great blessings and the gifts and accept them at the same time that we accept the trials and the pain. May we cry, blessed be your name. Either way, whether we are in a season of plenty or in want. May we rejoice in your blessings and thank you for our tribulations. And Lord, may we see all of our life framed in the gospel of Christ's sacrificial death and the eternal hope that it gives us.